Welcome to You, Me, Empathy. Thank you for listening. We would like to remind you that this podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Known as just a silly boy with a feely heart. Please consider supporting the show. Check us out on Patreon or simply leave a review on iTunes. Here is your host and creator of the show, Known Wells. Hello, feely humans. Welcome to another episode of Yumi Empathy. It's episode 95. You know, uh, a little bit behind the scenes here, this is maybe the fourth or fifth intro that I've recorded and uh, scrapped. So um, if you're hearing this, then uh, this is the final. And um, by final, I just mean I got tired of recording and, and, and scrapping uh, other intros that I didn't like. So uh, you survived intro and you should be proud because... Um, uh, you know, you're dealing with someone who's re- real persnickety. Okay, enough of that nonsense. It's episode 95, Feely Humans, with my guest, Rachel Reichbloom. Uh, Rachel and I talked a lot about grief in this episode. She is at That Good Grief on Instagram, and she's building a beautiful community around uh, grief and loss and and trying to process those things and and maintaining our san- sanity while we do that. And uh, Rachel has a tremendous loss in her life. She lost both of her parents within, I think, like a two-year span to terminal brain cancer. And we talk about that loss. We talk about being deep feelers and all sorts of stuff. Rachel is lovely, and I'm so grateful to know her. And I think you will be inspired by her story. Uh, before we get to the episode, though, I did want to remind you that, so episode 100 is coming up. This is episode 95, and I had, I reached out on Insta- Instagram to see if you lovely, feely humans would share your story, um, and I've only received two, uh, which leads me to believe you don't have time, or uh, the dog ate your homework, or, you know, you don't feel like being vulnerable, you're scared. I get it. All of those are valid. Uh, all of this to say that today's September 30th, and tomorrow's the first. So if you did want to share, go to at Empathy on Instagram, and one of my story highlights uh, highlights the post that gives you the details about what to share and how to share. And send that in uh, today. Uh, otherwise, if I don't get a bunch of them, I might not do that special 100th episode bash. I might do something different. Um, and for the folks who did submit, I love you, you two uh, humans. Uh, I will do something special for you. I promise. So don't uh, don't uh, give up hope. Um, okay, should we get to the episode? I think we should. Again, this is episode ninety-five. I hope you enjoy it. Make sure to follow Yumi Empathy on Instagram and Twitter at Yumi Empathy. Give Rachel a follow on Instagram at that good grief and enjoy this episode episode 95 
podcast about exploring the struggles we face in our day-to-day lives as humans trying to get by on this wondrous and overwhelming pale blue dot. The intent of Yumi Empathy is to talk openly without judgment about our mental health, our neuroses, our shared anxieties and worries, to create a dialogue that is vulnerable and deeply human and empathetic, and to share that dialogue with others to inspire emotional and cognitive collaboration and insight so we can, hand in hand, break down the stigma that make us feel shame and guilt for struggling, for feeling our feelings, for being feely humans. Yumi Empathy is a safe, friendly space designed to inspire the beauty in each of us. Today, I'm honored to hold feely space with fellow feely human and grief explorer extraordinaire, Rachel Reichblum. Hello, Rachel. Hello. Did I pronounce your last name correctly? Technically, I'm not sure even. We say Rich Bloom, but that's not like technically right either. So like I just go with whatever anyone says. Rich Bloom. Okay. I like that. That's actually easier to say than than what I try. Yeah. yeah, So what I try to do is I say it's easier said than spelled. Yes. I love it. Well, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So listeners, today on the show, we are going to we're going to get to know Rachel a little bit and her story and, and sort of the work she's doing in, in grief exploration. Uh, but before we do that, we always start the show with a, an emotional check-in. How, how are you feeling uh, today? How's the week been, Rachel? Yeah, you know, it's one of those where it feels like a day, an hour, like contains multitudes <laughs> unto mm-hmm. itself. Um, which I would say is a fairly typical, uh, experience with grief, but, um, had some highs in like my work life, but also some lows in more of my personal life. I had uh, two of my best friends, one of whom is due to give birth. The other recently had a baby. So very, you know, exciting times, but one of their father-in-laws just passed away earlier this week as well. So, oh, wow. you know, it's a, a, a decent reminder that, you know, there's a circle to life that we're all we're all destined to, um, but you know creates a mix of emotions within every moment itself. Yeah, you know the thing like it, you're you're so spot on. It's really like if you if we're able to kind of like take a step back and look at like each moment in our life and like each day, really, it really is a microcosm of like the highs and lows. Like they're oh, they're yeah. happening all of the time, all around us. Absolutely. Yeah. I always joke with, I meet with my grief counselor about once a week and whenever she asks me like, so how was the week? And I'm like, oh, if I replay it back, I mean, again, there's like the highest of highs and the lowest of lows um, every single week, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. How, how are you doing just processing the lows nowadays? <sighs> um, I think that it's, you know, a day-to-day thing. It depends how much else is on my plate in that moment and how much time and energy I can put toward it. Yeah. I think having gone through the experience that I have in the last couple of years, which we can get into in a little bit, but um, I've gotten slightly better, I would say, at, you know, kind of paying attention to where I'm at in my body, in my mind, in my emotions, and having that awareness um, yeah. and just kind of being able to know that I need to process something 
maybe being like, I can't do that right now, but I know I need to kind of come back to this when I do. Mm -hmm. Um, But just recognizing kind of what it takes. But then every now and then there are certainly like surprises for me too of like, oh, I didn't expect that to take the toll on me that it did. Yeah. Um, But then saying, oh, it did though. So I need to do something about that. That's really smart. I I think it is hard to kind of recognize a situation and, 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 and see how it can impact us and know from experience how it can impact us and know deep down that we need to process it. But like the processing of it is, is always the hardest part. It's why yeah. we all put it off all the time, you know? Definitely. And the thing with grief is you you have so much that you need to process that you get to a point. I, I like to call it you're in survival mode. Like Mm -hmm. you'll get back to thriving mode, but right now it's survival mode. And so you have no choice but to kind of process when you can, because there's just the, the, the load is just too much to try and kind of carry along, like rather than other things that you can kind of maybe pack up for later and deal with them on another day. Yeah, 100%. And I'm, I'm excited to explore that in more depth in a little bit. I wanted to share a moment I had recently with uh, my partner, uh, Jessica, so <laughs> I, I have a um, track record of being a little cavalier with just <laughs> my life. And by that, I mean, you know, in my teenage years, I was, you know, a sort of punk skate bar- skateboarder and I did a lot of crazy, stupid shit that um, I wouldn't do nowadays. But I, I think I, yeah. I still have, I still, I mean, I'm nearly 38 and I, I think I still have a lot of that sort of those punk rock uh, roots. And then also, a little bit of um, accepting of the chaos of, of the world. And so uh, this, this sort of came to fruition and I was, I had a friend of mine, we, we've been hiking and hiking running buddies for years and he went on a hike recently and he found some weird bunker like up way up, like, like tens, maybe 15 miles away up in, you know, in the middle of nowhere. And he showed me a little video of, and it was, genuinely creepy like he he didn't go inside he he was able to open like the the top of this bunker and sort of like you know peer into it and mm-hmm. i showed it to jessica and i was like in genuine excitement i was like look like this is an opportunity for exploration and adventure you know and um she you know it made her very very anxious and mm-hmm. i sort of kept talking about it and then i i, I went so far as like you know, setting a time with my friend to go explore this. Mm -hmm. And she had a moment with me where she, you know, she basically said, look, look, you're not listening to my anxiety. Is the, is, is this sort of dumb, you know, side exploration more important than, (laughs) than my anxiety, than my anxiety. And I, I, I had to take a moment and say like, look, I was, I, I'm sorry. I realized that it's not like mm-hmm. in the grand scheme of things, like taking a little opportunity to like adventure down some, I mean, I'm probably not going to die, but <laughs> you know, Jessica doesn't know that. And, 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 you know, I think it's like a, a, a good example. It was a good learning lesson for me to say like, Hey, you're right. That's, that's stupid. Why would I do that? if it's going to bring you so much anxiety and stress, like while I'm doing it. So I just decided not to do it. And I feel like some of it is also a decision on your 
on any individual's part of whether or not to recognize what that something could feel different for someone else, mm-hmm. right? We get caught up in our own excitement, our own energy around something. We're not thinking that someone else might face that with a different set of emotions. So, you know, there's probably a way in to have explored that with her yeah. in a way that wouldn't have made her anxious and could have been kind of this like journey together. But I think when two people are headed down a path where one is the anxious one, one's the excited one, and you keep down that path, you're diverging further and further apart. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, Yeah. you're absolutely right. And I've been talking about that a lot lately. And it just, it's, uh, it's easier to talk about it when it comes to like other people. But when it comes to yourself, it's, uh, it's a bit more of a challenge. But yeah, yeah, I say that as someone who is married and has conversations like that all the time. (laughs) I am not not counted out of that either. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, and I wasn't uh, saying that you weren't. Uh, It's interesting, because it's such a, um, it's, I think it's just a good lesson in, A, to your point, Rachel, like recognizing that, you know, we each have different reactions to things. And, 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 th- and I think it's important to recognize both, you know, uh, clearly and, and sort of talk about both. And then the other aspect of it is just like be open about how you're feeling and be, and be, and be open to listening to mm-hmm. how your partner's feeling. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I think, no, you know, so much of it is communication, right? Like, yeah. If Absolutely. I were always open and clear, I, I found that I've actually talked recently about this with my partners, you know, as of late, so many of the things that make me feel like short fused and, you know, temperamental and whatever it may be, ultimately, like three minutes into whatever that conversation is, I eventually just say, like, I'm just sad. Mm-hmm. Right. And so how much more so could I be doing if I were communicating what I was actually feeling up front? rather than going down this like veering path of, of what else I want to label it as before I want to actually admit that I am just sad. Yeah. Yeah, it, totally. It, it does sometimes require the kind of the sort of off-road navigation a little bit though. Uh, Definitely. You know, just talking it out and then like, oh shit, I am depressed or whatever, <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. Right. For sure. Yeah. Well, I just, anyways, I just wanted to share that for the listeners and, and, and because I think it's uh, uh, you know, it's interesting sort of a learning opportunity and, you know, listeners, if you ever have sort of a moment like that, you know, remember that we each have our own sort of look at things. We each have our own reactions to things and, and not, there's no one truth. That's the thing I'm learning is there's, there's no singular truth and we all have our valid subjective experiences. Any hoozles. Uh, Rachel, let's, let's, let's jump into your story. So I, sure. you know, you've, you've had, you've, you know, your, your whole platform is grief. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I, I don't laugh in the way that like, um, no, you, I, you gotta laugh when you're, it's I mean, it's, humor. that's my brand. It's fine. <laughs> your, your, yes, your brand. I like, I, I, it's weird saying your brand is grief, but that's true. You're like, you're beautifully exploring grief because you've had, you know, some pretty, you've had traumatic grief and you've had traumatic experience that led to this, this grief you're processing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I do want to explore, you know, obviously, uh, you know, you have two very distinct seminal moments in this mental health journey of yours. Um, but I also want to explore um, a little bit of your sort of story that lead that leads up to that. Mm-hmm. You know, can you give me maybe a couple of seminal moments from your childhood or just kind of your young adulthood? Um, just a snapshot of like maybe your 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 mental health journey or what your childhood was like in terms of um, you know your 
mental health sort of emotional intelligence training or your sort of empathy experience? What, what, I guess what I'm getting at is like, what, what was your childhood like? Let's start there. Yeah, sure. Um, so I think my bird's eye view of it now, <laughs> which might've been different than before all this happened. Sure. Um, I mean, pretty like normal upbringing, two parents, one brother, um, you know, like consistent kind of lifestyle and whatnot. Um, the one thing being that we moved around from time to time, uh, my dad's job, he was a TV news producer. So we would move every few years. Um, people often thought I was like an army brat when I told them how many times I had moved around. How many um, times did you move? I've moved, I think nine times now total. Wow. Um, that is a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and, and often we'd move to towns where it was like, everyone's grandparents had like grown up there. Right. Mm -hmm. So they had, they had never even ventured out of like one town, let alone being onto their like six or seventh. Um, and so I, I look back on that now and think about what skills that taught me, even though at the time it was obviously like uprooting you from your friends. Like when you're in elementary school, it's like just about the most devastating thing that could happen. Um, uh, so I think, but other than that, like, um, two very loving parents. I was always, I, you know, would consider myself like a sensitive child. I was an empathetic person from a young age. Um, didn't always know quite what to do with all those feelings that I was feeling, sure. <laughs> but I had them. Um, I, I know I, I cried a lot. I just remember like easily being kind of like tearful and what did um, you cry about? Oh, anything. <laughs> You like name it, I've sad experiences, it. happy experiences. Yeah, I think I was just like very emotionally attuned. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I still have that now where I, I feel for other people in like a deeply emotional way. It's yeah, not just like a same. theoretical intellectual way. And it's interesting because I try to intellectualize my own feelings, but like that's something I'm dealing with in therapy. Um, mm -hmm. Anywho. <laughs> how, did, but, how did your parents yeah. react to your crying? Like what was uh, that relationship like? Yeah, I think... My mom probably, like, I wouldn't say coddled, but felt the need to kind of protect me um, mm -hmm. in those situations and knew I was, like, more fragile or delicate, um, which is probably the opposite of what anyone would describe me as now based on, like, how I kind of present myself, um, which is interesting in and of itself. Um, and my dad, I don't know, I, it wasn't one of those situations where I was told, like, not to cry as much. Sure. You know, yeah, it wasn't yeah. like I was a crybaby. It was just... I was just that type of child. Yeah, you were sensitive. Yeah, yeah. And I always felt, I, I, I remember like being in classroom settings and whatnot and having to like confront certain situations and always getting emotional. And I do have that now where if I have to like sit down with my boss and something's on my mind, I do tend to cry. And it's not from, I always try to say like, I'm not crying because I'm sad. Like I'm not crying because you've hurt my feelings. It's just that like when I'm overwhelmed with emotion, that's kind of a form of release for me. Um, and even as a yeah. small, yeah. And even as a small child, my mom always said, like, I get very tired after I cry. <laughs> so it's almost like a defense mechanism of like, okay, this is like my capacity. I need to cry so that I can just go to sleep and this can be yeah. kind of done. Um, so that's my kind of who I was. It's interesting. The, I love what you said about, um, and I, I don't, I think more needs to be sort of explored about this is, when we, we, and I think there's a cultural understanding that crying has to come from sadness, right? Mm -hmm. And, and when we see someone cry, we have this, we have this sort of knee jerk reaction of like, oh, we need to console them, 
right? Or, you know, we need to like hug them, you know, because they're sad and they're experiencing some pain or whatever. But to your point, the truth is like crying can come from so many things. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Just a buildup of emotion. I, I'm the same way. Like I'll, I'll go see uh, Wicked on Broadway and cry <laughs> throughout. And it's yeah. not sad. It's just because the music is so beautiful or what have you, you know? Right. And I, I've, I've actually cried at every single like graduation that I've had. So like fifth grade graduation and eighth grade and high school and college um, upon seeing my parents at the end of those kind of periods of time, just because I think there's so much pent up in those moments of like, it's this transition phase and you're like, something's coming to an end and you're entering into something unfamiliar. And, you know, so it's, it can be anxiety, but it's also happy because it's a celebratory thing to like have achieved something. Um, I think it's, again, it's like, you just, if you think about yourself kind of filling up with emotion, you reach the top and what comes out are tears. <laughs> <laughs> I like that analogy. I mean, I like that picture. Um, when you were not at home and when you were at school or, or somewhere else, like around your friends and you felt sort of the, the emotions welling and the crying coming, did you, how did, how did that feel? Did you feel anxious? Did you feel shame? Yeah. So I would say, yeah, I, I think like talking about what my journey was kind of up until let's say that like early teen years, high school years, um, it presented more in, I, I evolved to be diagnosed with anxiety and depression. Um, and I think that to me, what I differentiate between now and then in terms of like circumstantial situations is it was very much like a chemical imbalance. Like I could feel that in my body that this was like well beyond my control. Mm. Um, and that did result my senior year of high school. Like I did kind of pull away from a lot of people because I was just kind of carrying this thing that hadn't been diagnosed at the time. Um, and I didn't know quite what to do with it. And I was too anxious to like enjoy anything that was happening around me. Um, yeah, but I think entering college and then finally like having a diagnosis and being, um, at the time I chose to be medicated, um, I was able to kind of talk about what I was experiencing, um, and not have shame around that. I, my mom had always taken antidepressants, um, had gone to therapy. So there wasn't necessarily like a stigma in our home about it. Yeah. Which I'm grateful for. It took a little bit long to diagnose it, but you know, every parent is just, again, I think from my mom's perspective, um, you know, not that I can really speak on her behalf, but I know we've had conversations about just that, you know, as a, teen she wasn't sure how much of it was just again I was a sensitive kid you know I cried I it it was hard to differentiate between that and what's you know actually like depressive behavior yeah Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot lately because I you know had an experience with my mom recently and and as of this recording this you know this past Monday's episode was all about sort of that experience where you know she sort of her interpretation of me as a child was sort of, you know, just a happy kid. And, you know, I think I was happy in some ways, uh, but I was also, you know, undiagnosed depressed and anxiety, you know, (laughs) I was struggling and I feared my father and, you know, there's all all sorts of stuff going on. And I think, you know, I, I, I think it's hard. I I think, you know, I'm not a parent, but it's, it's gotta be so hard to, to reconcile those things. For sure. And like, as a parent of a teenager, you know, teenagers have certain behavior patterns that are totally normal. Um, And it's hard to differentiate between what's, you know, just acting out and kind of exploring identity and figuring out like kind of what who you are outside of your parents. um, And what is 
you know, I'm truly in pain and I need help. Yeah. Um, and that's not the age where you're best about asking for help when you need it. <laughs> yeah, that, that is true. I was, I mean, to my previous point, I was a fucking van- vandal. <laughs> and vandals do not ask for their vandals. Help. Do, I mean, cool. asking for help as a vandal is is weak. <laughs> I think they'd like kick you out of the vandal. Club they they do. Yeah. They kick you out of the vandal club uh, where no girls are allowed. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, we, uh, so your mom was on antidepressants. Did that information to you come later or were you aware of it, you know, when you were growing up? I knew that she had a, I think I'm trying to remember. Cause I remember when I was like, I found out later that she had been depressed during our earlier childhood. So like around the time we were like six, seven, eight years old, I didn't know that she had been struggling with depression at that point. Um, but by the time I was, and I knew she had this doctor and I found out later that that doctor was her therapist that she was going to see. Mm-hmm. Um, cause it was one of those, you know, you get in the car, your mom takes you somewhere. You're not really paying attention to what's going on. You're just sure. like, okay, I'll, I'll sit here and play my game boy until you're done. Um, game boy. Aww, <laughs> and, you're dating yourself. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, like in my iPod? I don't know. I'll make no, I'm just up. kidding. So I, I, I would, I, I mean. <laughs> It's the um, same era. I, I would have been yeah. envious of your Game Boy. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> it was clear and it was really cute. Oh, nice. um, anywho, but so I knew I didn't know what was going on in time. I think probably in my early teen years, she I think my brother had some learning, um, you know, differences. And so he needed to be tested and needed to see um, a therapist for things involving like school and academics and whatnot. Um, and so I think that probably brought it more into like the vernacular in our home generally. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I know that she started taking my brother to see a therapist. And then, um, when I, I kind of had like a breaking point during my, uh, senior year of high school, which gotcha. was how this kind of all came to light. And then she had me go to a therapist that she had gone to previously. Um, so, and it wasn't unfamiliar to me that she had seen this person. So, um, yeah, I guess it wasn't it wasn't like a one of those homes where it's like very much out in the open, but it also wasn't kind of the secret, you right. know, that we don't pretend that these things are happening. Right. And I, I think that's so amazing. Like it's I think that's kind of rare, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think definitely for like I, I feel like for our our children, you know, future children's generation, mm-hmm. it may not be as much. And that's my I, I hope and I would hope to do the same thing in my future home. But um, I think, yeah, it was a little bit ahead of its time, um, yeah. her to be doing that. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's great. Way. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the vast majority of people I speak to, uh, you know, I think it was, uh, den- you know, just denial and, and no, no conversations around anything, you know, and no, no, even, uh, you know. No therapy, no right. anything, yeah. you know. Yeah, and I don't think my extended, it's interesting. I don't know, and I can't now ask <laughs> how my mom kind of happened upon it originally. Yeah. Um, but I don't know that it was a value her family had necessarily had either. So I don't know how she kind of ended up on her own mental health journey that seemed kind of out of the norm, even within her own family, which was the norm for everyone else, which was that you don't talk about it. Um, yeah. But that was just something she had done more independently. When you started talking about it, you know, after your senior year and into college and, and sort of what did that look like for you? What did, what did that sort of journey for you look like? Yeah, I have a very distinct memory of laying in a girlfriend's room on like a Friday night in college 
um, with my two best friends who are still my my two best friends who are both one who just had her baby and one who is very much due any minute now. Oh. Um, we were laying in, you know, one of our dorm rooms. And I remember like looking up the ceiling and trying to like garner the strength to be like, I have depression. Cause I had never said those words kind of out loud. Mm-hmm. And I imagine it's, you know, different for everyone, but I imagine it's kind of like for some people, the coming out experience of like, I have this secret I'm going to tell you and no one is surprised to hear it. Right. <laughs> um, like, they're like, yeah, of course you do. Like, we know you're medicated. <laughs> like, we can tell your mood is kind of, like, in different places. And, you know, you go to therapy and whatever. But it, there, I had never kind of said that label out loud and to friends before. Um, and so I, I um, yeah, I just, I, I didn't tell a lot of people. But over time, I've gotten a lot more comfortable with it, I think similar to what I do now in the grief space is like the only way to normalize something is to make it normal yourself. Right. Like I just need to start talking about it and we'll see what happens. Um, so yeah, I think we each have our own responsibility Yeah, and that can be hard to do when you're like, I want to say that with like, you don't need to do that day one of diagnosis or anything like that. Like, excuse me, when you're in a deep, dark hole, like, that's not the first thing on your mind and it doesn't need to be at all. Um, But as you're kind of going through the journey and have the strength and the energy and um, the wherewithal to do it, I think it's really valuable. Yeah, absolutely. And what a, what a, I mean, it's so neat that you have this distinct memory in this moment in your mind of, of sort of coming to that conclusion and having the courage to, to speak up. I think, um, for me at least, like I, I don't, it's much more muddied in my head, I think. Um, and I, I envy that in you a little bit. Um, I don't know why I I think it's a, maybe it's sort of like, it's a, I'm not romanticizing it, but I think it's, um, it's nice to hold on to that sort of moment as part of your own sort of journey and, and sort of recovery and sort of coming to terms with your mental health. And I think, I, I agree. I think we all need to at some point, and we each have our own path, of course, and I'm just a silly boy uh, <laughs> and not a therapist, but I think each of us do at some point need to come to terms with that and, and talk about it. Yeah. And I actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, I'm curious my friends even remember that being a moment in time. I bet they don't. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest. Like, it's just another yeah, day. Yeah. They're like, what know? are you talking about? Yeah. You're like, <laughs> I know I don't remember a, one of the millions of Friday nights we were like hanging <laughs> in each other's rooms in college. And like you said a sentence like, no, I don't. Um, but in my mind, it's, you know, I'd be More curious. I, I, would, I would love to have you go ask them at some point. I'm going to, I'm yeah. seeing them later. So I will, <laughs> I will go ask. I you know I it's, it's so, yeah absolutely <laughs> it's so interesting how our friends know before we do or mm-hmm. you know our friends already know we like think mm-hmm. they don't know but like you know our closest friends like they know of course they know like that's they couldn't I be think our close friend if they didn't know exactly right? exactly I think it's such yeah. a a beautiful representation of like what friends can be for each other definitely yeah, yeah. um well so. This is all sort of leading up to mm-hmm. um, this. <laughs> we can do it. I'm, very, I'm ready. <laughs> you know, traumatic experience, and and one of which that I feel is is like I can't even wrap my head around. So, can you walk me through a little bit, and the listeners, uh, what happened? Just just the incident. What what happened? Like how did how did this kind of come to come to light for you? Yeah. So I guess 
the short print version would be um, my dad was diagnosed with glioblastoma, which is a terminal form of brain cancer. Um, he was diagnosed in October 2015 when I was 26, 25 years old. Um, and then he passed away 10 months later um, in August 2016 when I was 26 years old. Um, and then about a year later in October 2017, my mom was diagnosed as well with glioblastoma. Yes, you, same disease, um, which is, again, terminal form of brain cancer. And she passed away seven months later or seven weeks later, sorry, seven weeks later, even I can't believe it myself, um, in December 2017. Um two days after my 28th birthday. Um, I mean, wow. It, it's just like, yeah. My and then heart I, is breaking I, for you. That's yeah. And I like to so... throw in there just cause like for yeah. fun, for added measure. Um, my brother has struggled with addiction um, throughout his kind of young adult life. Um, and he relapsed during that time as well. And mm. so um, in the time since, he has now been so clean for nine months, which is absolutely amazing. It's the yeah. longest time he's been clean since amazing. he was, you know, like under 18 years old, which is um, kind of astounding. He's now 27. So um, that's been another piece of the journey of kind of parenting a sibling when you mm. just want to have a sibling because you're going through this thing together and yet you're very much not. Um, so, yeah, that's the the shortest possible version <laughs> <laughs> of the last two and a half years of my life. I mean, that wasn't too long ago. No, it wasn't. I have to remind myself that a lot. I uh, imagine you you do. So when you heard the news uh, that your dad was diagnosed with this mm -hmm. uh, geoblastoma, mm -hmm. um, how did you take it? What was your what was your emotional state like? So I was at work um, in New York at the time, and I. My mom called me. It was like toward the end of the workday, but it was like 4.30 or something on a, I think it was a Wednesday. Um, and I was, you know, gabbing with one of my girlfriends at the office. And so I picked up and I was like, what could be so important that you're like interrupting me in the middle of the day? And my mom's tone immediately indicated that we were not having a comedy session right now. Um, mm. And she said, I have to tell you something serious. So I went into one of our conference rooms um, and I don't know that I could even go to like replay the exact conversation in my head, given everything else that's happened since. But um, the short version being like we they found a tumor in daddy's head. Um, I can let you know what the plan is. If you want to come home, you can. But if you want to wait until we have a little more information, you can do that as well. Um, but he's here now. He's OK. Um, and we'll have to wait and see um, what this is. Um, and at the time, like I had never, like I said, I hadn't experienced grief at any point earlier in my life. Um, my grandparents, I had what my mom's dad had died when she was 25. Um, but my grandmother had since remarried. So, and remarried when I was, you know, about three years old. Mm -hmm. So I had, you know, what I felt I had four grandparents growing up, they were all still alive and well, um, you know, hadn't had any kind of like trauma within our family, um, dynamic in terms of, death and dying in any sort of way. So, um, you know, at the first I didn't really know what it meant. Um, I knew that something was changing. I knew that this was going to be a pivotal moment. Um, had I known then what I know now, <laughs> I don't know that I would have, yeah. you know, taken another breath after that, but, um, I didn't. So 
Um, I ended up going back home. I had been dating my now husband at the time for I think just over a year. We were both 25. Um, and we, I, I asked him, I was like, so will you come back to Chicago with me? Cause I decided, you know, I'll go home. I'll figure it out. Like just, I'd feel better just being there. Um, and knew my dad was probably going to have to have surgery and didn't know what that was going to look like. Um, and he hesitated. And I remember being so angry about it because I was like, oh, I can't believe this. Um, he's like, he said, let me talk to my parents. And I look back on that moment and I was like, God bless his heart that he wasn't like, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like he was 25. He had yeah. never dealt with anything like this either. Like, right. let him talk to his goddamn parents. Like, this is not <laughs> his problem to take on. Right. Um, and since then, he's never, you know, flinched or wavered in his support and showing up in every single possible way. Um, but I, I, I always try to forgive myself for being upset in that moment, which is why I say it out loud. Um, because I think that was a quite rational reaction um, to the situation. I mean, in whatever emotion you're feeling in that moment, you know, I mean, is real and, and understanding whatever you're, whatever you're feeling. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 But I like to, you know, it's my part in like, apologizing to him for even. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that's fair. Yeah. So you get the news from your mom, you head home, you know, you are you hanging out at the house? Are you kind of, you know, there to kind of support the family? Yeah, so I think I got back in time for, I think my dad was in surgery when I got back. I had flown, I was in New York, I had flown back to Chicago where my parents were living at the time. Um, and... I have pictures of my mom and her best friend in the waiting room having, you know, cause we didn't know what was going on at that point. Um, we knew he had a tumor. We didn't know if it was benign or malignant. We didn't know even if it was malignant, how, you know, how bad it was going to be because they were going in there to try and remove as much of it as they can. Um, the one challenge with brain cancer specifically and anything kind of involving your brain is it's, it's not like another part of your body where they can take, extra just in case right. you know like if you're having a mastectomy they can do a double mastectomy just to be you know overly cautious if you have something on your leg they can take you know yeah. with your brain obviously there's not like extra wiggle room to take a little more than they need to um so in any case you know um i'm certainly not a doctor i don't know this you know <laughs> inside and out um but obviously like there's always a chance of some microscopic pieces of tumor remaining even if the surgery goes you know kind of off without a hitch yeah um but we had to wait until after that to know um what sort of diagnosis it would result in um and so i remember being in the icu with my dad after his surgery um he was kind of in and out of it um during that time and i think we didn't find out the final diagnosis until a couple days later i think they came out of surgery and they said it doesn't look good um, but you're still, you know, there's always room for hope until you hear otherwise. So they came though. So a couple of days later, they, they gave you the info that he's not going to make it. Um, they, that it's glioblastoma that, okay. that, you know, they're always hesitant to give you any sort of range. They tell you not to Google it. Right. Because if you Google it, you will find that the average person lives for about 10 to 14 months. Um, obviously there are people who beat those odds. There are also people who are on the other side. Um, but it's, it's a, you know, it's a terminal diagnosis. 
Mm. Um, and the discussion from there became about treatment options and what my dad wanted to do. Um, I think at first, if I remember correctly, he wasn't that interested in doing treatment, which would be a classic my dad thing to do. He's like, oh, this is it. Like, why try? Mm. And not that he was lazy, but he um, he's an incredible person who felt like he had come to this earth to do certain things and he had done them. Uh, and so what was the point of kind yeah. of like dragging this out? I'm like, sure. Hi, we're the point over here. Remember us? I yeah. see you. As I do like a little waving motion. <laughs> yeah, I'm crying over uh, here. Yeah, that yeah. one. So he wasn't angry about his diagnosis. He wasn't, you know, kind of, I think there were moments of frustration as he deteriorated just from not being able to do what he used to be able to do or, you know, think of the name he was trying to think of or whatever it may be. But um, generally speaking, like he was kind of at peace with the whole thing, which yeah. drove my mom insane. <laughs> I, I bet. Yeah. And yeah. he, and how much longer until he passed? So he, 10 months from the time of his mm. diagnosis to when he passed away. Um, he did treatment for, he had to recover from surgery for a few weeks before he could start chemo and radiation. Um, and then he did some like alternating rounds of chemo and radiation. Um, and then in June, I think it was June 9th of 2016, he um, got his MRI scans back and it showed that it had returned. And so um, there was some debate of whether we try something experimental with, you know, cancer immunotherapy or something like that, different trials that were going on. Um, and he just wanted to kind of be done with it and maintain quality over quantity at that point. Um, and so he came home to do hospice care there. Um, but at that time he was still able to, you know, drive, he was still working, um, and slowly began to slow down. And so there was about, he ended up having about eight or nine weeks where he was at home, um, and able to kind of, we called it his living funeral where everyone in his mm. life was able to kind of come through the house, have time with him, tell the stories they wanted to tell. Um, and then, you know, kind of say their goodbyes. So, in my view, like, it, obviously, I would have preferred it to be happening about 30 or 40 years later than it had. But in terms of how it progressed, it was kind of the perfect way. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, you know, losing parents, and especially parents, losing parents at, at your age, like, it's devastating. Uh, mm -hmm. But the, the, the picture you're painting with the sort of the living funeral, um, like, that that's... Um, that's actually quite beautiful. Yes. I would say it's the exact opposite of what happened with my mom. <laughs> okay. So when did, when, so when did, hold on, yeah, before, so, I, I mean, before I, yeah, before yeah. I ask that, I'm very curious, like, are you at this point, like, learn, are you, I mean, you're, you you got to be Googling all of the things, right? Like, are you learning all about things. all that stuff? All yeah. I'm someone who likes to like get their nose and things and ask questions and, I could tell. understand more. <laughs> I'm gonna take that as a compliment and go. With oh it. yeah, absolutely. Um, but, but I think more. I, I'm also just like a curious person, so sometimes yes. I like to ask things just because I'd like to know, um, not because I'm trying to like change destiny or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, but yeah. just I want to understand what's happening. Um, yeah, absolutely. Both so I can support him and also like so I can feel intelligent for 20 seconds in a room full of doctors. <laughs> um, and then. Your mom, when did, so at what uh, stage in the timeline did that happen again? Yeah, so my, so my dad passed away in August 2016, and then she was diagnosed October 2017. So it was about 12, 
14, between like 13, 14 months later. And what um, are the odds of that? Like literally like I, we asked someone and it was like one in like 500 million or something oh like that. It's not, God. it's not a thing. <laughs> it's really not a thing. Um, they I mean, know, unbelievable. yeah, they know mm. very little about glioblastoma generally in terms of like, they know it's not as of now, like there's no genetic underpinning for it. They don't know of any, you know, it's like asbestos and things like that. They know are causes for other types of cancer. There's nothing like that for glioblastoma. So I don't know, maybe before I die, I'll find out what the cause was, but I'm not Mm. banking on that. Yeah. I mean, gosh, cancer, that's just, that's that's the worst. Um, I, I'm at a loss of words because it's just so much, just so much. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, 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 I don't know. I, I've never really latched on to the like why of it Yeah. because it's literally impossible. Even if I found yeah. out the why, I don't know that it would make me feel any better. No, you're um, right. And I There's also no... don't. Yeah. I mean, I can say that now because I'm feeling good, but like in my lower moments, that's obviously not what I'm feeling. Sure. Um, but yeah, I think, I think even having the answer wouldn't solve it, but I also don't expect to get the answer yeah. um, anytime soon. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, I think that's healthy. And so your mom gets diagnosed 12, 14 months later mm-hmm. and you're like, what the fuck is happening? Uh, yeah, for the most part. I yeah. literally had started a new job. Um, I was a week and a half in and I had told, I told my boss before I started, I was like, just so you know, my dad passed away kind of recently. So I do like to try and I had moved to San Francisco at this point. I said, so I like to try and get home you know, every so often just so I can spend time with my mom. I hope, you know, I can just kind of work remotely one Friday every couple, every few weeks or so and just be able to spend the weekend with her. Um, So he knew what had happened. And then I had to walk into work on my, I think it was literally like my sixth day at the office. So just a heads up, (laughs) uh, they found a tumor in my mom's brain. Yes, this sounds familiar to you because it's the same thing that happened with my dad. Um, I know what happens from here. So like I'm going to stick around the office and try and get a little work done right now. Um, and then we'll see what happens and like, see how this all unfolds, Mm. um, was how I approached it. Um, because I think part of it was I had some ego about it of like, this couldn't possibly be the same thing. Like that is, that is truly insane. Right. right? Like that's not possible. Um, and I think I just started a new job and I was like, I don't want to just, you know, float on out of here because who knows what we're about to undertake. So, you know, trying to set that like professional boundary of like, oh, I'm here, I'm focused, I'm dedicated. Yeah. Um, but then about three quarters of the way through the day, I like turned to my boss. I was like, I'm sorry, I got to go. And I headed home to my apartment to pack up a bag to head back to Chicago. Hmm. And so your mom gets admitted. Yeah. So, um, the interesting thing that I didn't get into about my dad, but with my mom, the ways that these kind of disease, this disease presents itself um, can be kind of, I'd say interesting from like a scientific point of view. Okay. Um, just in the sense that because it's your brain, the way it presents is not, not as obvious as maybe some other ailments. Um, so for my dad, it had presented, he had started um, saying sentences that didn't make sense and like garbling up words um, and he had called my mom while she was at work and he said a sentence to her. And my mom was like, do you think that, do you like, did that make sense in your head? And he said something else. And she was like, I'm coming home and taking you to the hospital. Mm. So that was how they found it with him. Um, and with my mom, it had 
been, it, we had just obviously passed the one year anniversary of my dad dying. We're Jewish and celebrate the high holidays. So, um, had just kind of gone through that first cycle without him. And so she had been having these kind of like depressive episodes, but figured like that's easily attributable, right. To <laughs> everything else that's going on. Yeah. Um, and a girlfriend had come over and saw her and she was kind of like collapsed on the floor in her bedroom. And they had basically been looking to check her into like the psych ward of the hospital just for kind of observation and making sure like to see what else was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, she gets admitted to the ward. She's doing some, she's already gone through the intake process at the hospital. Um, and a nurse was doing some, I guess, check with her and noticed that my mom was saying things that didn't make sense, like kind of in the language way my father had. Um, and she was like, let's just do a scan just in case. Cause she said, this doesn't seem like the same symptoms that you would have um, from what you're actually being brought in for. Um, and that's when they found the tumor for her. Um, and had they not found it, then she could have died from the pressure that was going on in her brain um, that night. So both like very haphazard ways of kind of ending up at the place we did. Um, but just really interesting in terms of, I don't know, from a curiosity point of view, right? Like those are interesting yeah, no, circumstances absolutely. that brought them both there. Um, my dad's was on his frontal lobe. So that was, was putting pressure on his area that controls his language and all that mm-hmm. function. And my mom's was actually in the center of her brain. Like if you were to go center both directions, like truly the middle of your brain, um, that's where hers had grown. And it, the reason that she was kind of at that risk was because it was blocking brain fluid from oh, wow. draining. Um, and so that's what ultimately kind of was her demise was that they could never really, really get that brain fluid flowing the way it needed to, to like, mm-hmm. um, allow her to function, mm-hmm. honestly. And how long, um, again, how long did, uh, how long was she in the hospital and how long until she passed? Yeah, she was in the hospital for about five weeks, um, bouncing between the ICU, a regular floor and a physical therapy floor and then back to the ICU and then kind of going through that cycle. Um, and then she, we brought her home for hospice care for about two weeks before she passed away. Hmm. And during this time, are you? are you sort of kind of taking charge and, and sort of handling everything? Yes. Mm-hmm. At the ripe age of 27 years old, as a recently <laughs> grieving person for their father um, and with a mother who um, couldn't communicate, couldn't, I mean, she was basically, um, she had a couple moments of lucidity during this whole thing, but because of everything that was going on in her brain and the swelling and the draining and whatnot, um, she wasn't really like with us other than in spirit, um, during that whole illness. And what was your, during that period before your mom passes, what was your self care? Like, were you able to get to therapy or was it just kind of all on the family? Yeah. So I, have to pay a big thank you to the community of people, her friends and our family who really um, stepped in. Obviously, like it was very unusual circumstances and I don't think anyone expected me to be able to handle it all on my own. Yeah. Um, and also obviously my husband, my now husband, Dan was there. Um, my friends were there in ways that like I could have never imagined or even like thought of needing. Um, but I was the pr- primary caretaker. Um, I made it, to yoga a couple of times and I made it 
to acupuncture a couple of times. I was trying to do that on a semi-regular basis, but because I was back in Chicago, like I didn't have my therapist, mm. who I usually saw, um, I was living out of like a suitcase. Um, you know, I wasn't in my home. I mean, yeah. I was in my parents' home, but, um, it wasn't, you know, it's not like I could maintain any semblance of a routine that I was used to. Yeah. Uh, because it wasn't where I had built my life. Yeah. I mean, the thing, you know, I, I like I'm just projecting here, but like, <laughs> go right ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I imagine you know, putting trying to put myself in your shoes yeah, yeah, and yeah. sort of imagining myself like I, yeah, you know, I'd be a wreck and not sort of able to even engage in mindful self care. Like you're talking about going to yoga. Like I would just you know trying and trying to be present or something and just kind of uh, an, an anxious mess. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't not that <laughs> just because I made it to yoga a handful of times. Yeah, I can yeah, tell yeah. you that. Um, and it was definitely at the urging of friends and family. Sure. Um, I'm eternally grateful for everyone who helped pitch in and also um, afforded us the ability to hire um, someone to stay with my mom overnight so that I was able to go home and sleep because I was at the hospital basically from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. every wow. day for that whole period of time. Um, I wouldn't have felt comfortable leaving, but I'm someone who like someone who knows that they get tired when they cry. Um, I'm also someone who needs my sleep. Like I've never been able to negotiate on that at all, no matter what phase of my life I've been in. Um, I was super cool in college that I wanted to be in bed by 10 PM and wake up early. That apparently is not the cool thing to do in college. I, I think out. that's pretty cool. I mean, thank you. That works now that I'm like almost in my thirties, but <laughs> <laughs> was not such a thing in college. Apparently they don't throw parties at like 6 PM. So everyone can be in bed. I think they're doing PM. it wrong. I, if I could give them any advice, I agree. Um, that said, thankfully I've survived that part of my life and now I'm in a routine where that lends itself better to being a morning person. Yeah. Um, but I knew like I, I truly cannot function without sleep. Um, I, not that I was sleeping well and I had, um, some help in that regard, medicated and prescribed help, um, in making sure I slept. But, um, I knew that like I needed to be on to make critical medical decisions on another person's life, like their behalf. Right. Um, and that wasn't going to happen if I didn't sleep. That was the number one thing. And I think it was hard at first to accept that, but because I know that about myself, like so deeply, like I just, I just know, like after two nights of no sleep, I'm a literal wreck. Oh, um, certainly way. in this, yeah, like certainly in this circumstance, like it's not like that rule is not going to apply anymore. Right. Um, right. If anything, it's going to be more important. Yeah. And how is, um, is your brother around during this time? Is he at home? Um, yes and no. I think, um, at the time he was in active addiction. Um, he was living in Chicago, um, at home at the time or did he have his apartment then? Oh, he lived at home and he, but he, we let him know that he was going to need to kind of find his own place at the end of this, because once we knew that it was kind of terminal in my mom's case, that you know, obviously we were going to have to get rid of the house. Mm. Um, and he was going to need to kind of live on his own. And he was 26 at the time. So that was a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Um, and, uh, he, but he made himself scarce, I think, um, for a number of reasons. And I don't want to kind of, you know, assign what his experience was to him, but he let it be known. I mean, it was very hard for him. I think my dad's death was traumatic for him in a lot of ways. And, he hadn't begun to deal with that because he was in an in active addiction. Um, 
And he certainly couldn't handle kind of going through that again and watching it happen. Um, I was always kind of in our sibling dynamic. I had always been the, the leader of the two as the older one. Um, but I certainly gave him that. I didn't, I didn't have expectations of him this time around. Gotcha. Um, and that wasn't necessarily because of the addiction, but just because I knew how hard it was for him. And I knew that I was more equipped um, to handle it. That said, it would have been nice. <laughs> sure. Um, and that's something we've obviously dealt with in kind of our, our journey since he's yeah. um, gotten clean. But Yeah. Um, so your, your mother passes. Mm-hmm. And this was 2017, you said? December 2017, yes. 2017, okay. December 7th. And what's, what's, what's happening at that point? What, what's, are you, you know, where are you at emotionally? What are you having to deal with? You obviously mentioned the house. Like, what are you, what's, what's sort of the day-to-day like? Yeah, so she passed December 7th, 2017. Like I mentioned, I had started a new job. I had been there for about a week and a half and then basically essentially took a leave of absence until this point. Um, were they so I, sort of supportive? They were wonderful. That's so great. I have to like say a major thanks to not, I, I think there were moments that I was concerned and whatnot, but generally speaking, like to not have that one other worry on my plate was enormous. Yeah, um, and so yeah, kind of endlessly grateful to my manager and um, my boss and all that. So, um, but I knew that I needed to get back eventually. <laughs> um, and so I kind of planned on, well, it seems like, you know, there's a few more weeks till the end of the year. It'd probably be good to target kind of the beginning of the year is a good time to go back to San Francisco. Um, obviously needing some flexibility to kind of get back to the house and deal with those things. But generally speaking, to try and kind of move things along. Mm-hmm. Um, so my parents rented the house. So we didn't have to deal with selling it, but we did have to deal with getting out of it. Um, bills and whatnot. I <laughs> I always say I, I used to torture my mom that she would write down all of her passwords on a sheet of paper. And I was like, mom, this is like the least secure thing you could <laughs> possibly do. And then I was like, oh, thank God you did that because it made it very easy oh um, my to gosh, take over yeah. when all the bills were in favor. I mean, you know, it, easy is a relative term when you're right. not managing a household of bills and all of a sudden have to. But um, or in terms of just, that. you know, had your parents die, you know? Yeah. Or that there's or that. that too. Yeah. 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 Adds some, some dynamic to it. Um, so yeah, so I had kind of take over those things. Um, but again, like a community of family and friends who really stepped in to support whatever they could. So delegated as much as I could just because I didn't have a choice. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. wow. And so that was, yeah. I guess, so it's 2019. I don't do yeah, that. Yeah, a year and a half ago. A year and a half about, yeah. 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 And so at what point do you, all right, let me back up. Sorry, I'm getting ahead <laughs> of myself. Uh, so that happens. You go back to work. You sort of process all these things. Are you, what's your, what's your self-care at this point look like? Are you jumping right back into therapy like what does that look like so i had changed jobs so i had changed kind of where i was commuting to every day and my therapist i had been seeing was down near my other job and i and for those of you familiar with the bay area i had been working down in mountain view 
um, which is, you know, kind of the South Bay area. Mm-hmm. And so I had someone who was down there and that was convenient kind of coming from work. But now I had a job that was in San Francisco. I live in the city. So I needed to find someone local. Um, and so I had already, I had been in between therapists and obviously then really needed to find someone. Um, and there's no worse time to look for someone than when you're in crisis mode. For anyone listening out there, please go to therapy when you don't need it so that you don't have to start with someone when you do need it because that is truly the hardest time to do it. Um, Anywho, so I started looking for different therapists and I actually happened upon like, oh, I wonder if there are people who like specialize in grief. Um, And I found someone um, in the area who like kind of took, did a sliding scale and felt like a fit for me. and was less of the traditional therapy, but actually was a grief counselor. And so that was something I focused on. I see her on a regular basis um, and didn't know the difference between, you know, maybe a grief counselor and a therapist before all of this happened or what the value of going to someone, you know, a psychiatrist, psychologist, whatever, you know, there's a million different kind of suffixes to choose right. from at this point. Um, but felt that my priority during this time was to focus on my grief. So why not see someone who could specialize in that? Because so much of, even when I go through things with her that aren't directly related to like, I miss my mom, they often lead to somewhere in that space. Kind of like I said at the beginning with, you know, when I get into my arguments and I end up with just saying like, I'm just sad, right? So much of what is my experience day to day right now is, is layered in that. And Mm. so it's good to go to someone who knows that experience personally um, and can understand how that kind of plays into your life too. Um, can you, um, yeah. well, for, first of all, I think it is amazing that we have access to people who specialize in these things. I think it's yeah. uh, tremendous. And the other thing is, can you just for the listener's sake, explain what a sliding scale is? Absolutely. So a sliding scale um, is basically that a therapist doesn't necessarily charge a set rate or they keep certain slots in their schedule open for people who can't necessarily afford their full rate. Um, and they'll kind of assess based on what you can afford to pay, what your income is sometimes, and adjust that based on what you're able to afford. And so again, that can be someone takes everyone on a sliding scale, so they kind of adjust everyone's rate differently. Um, or it can be that, you know, in my case, it's a therapist who says, I set aside, you know, two clients a week who I see regularly, who I let be on the sliding scale um, to kind of make sure I'm seeing people who, who need my help and not just eliminating them based on the cost itself. That's tremendous. I, I, I wanted to bring that up as a point for the listeners because I, I, my therapist has been gracious enough to allow us to do that as well. Um, and, um, you know, therapy can be so expensive and I think there are, you know, there are more and more sort of opportunities for people, but the sliding scale model I think is, is really tremendous and it's very sort of much more, you know, client focused. For sure. And I think, I mean, there are a lot of like different realms of things that kind of implement that same thinking. You can think of law firms that do pro bono hours that they Mm -hmm. have to do. Like it kind of just rounds out their practice for them and it's a different exposure for them as well that benefits them as much as it benefits you. Yeah. So at what point do you start sort of pouring your sort of grief recovery and, and processing your grief publicly in the way that you're doing with that good grief? Yeah, so I started that last August. It was the two-year anniversary, but my dad had passed away. Um, and I had felt like 
I'm someone who I, I get a lot from writing. That's like a format for me that can provide therapy. Um, it's an easy way for me to express myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I think as much as I'm talking to you right now, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. taken me a while to get comfortable um, expressing myself as eloquently that yeah, way. I'm the same way. I, I think you yeah. and I are very similar in that way. Yeah, I, I like to call myself an extroverted introvert. Like I mm-hmm. can do it, but it, it takes a ton out of me. Yeah. Um, writing, I can do more. Like I can sit down for two minutes and just really like let it out and move on, um, or move through as you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to do something to commemorate my dad. I had pub, I had not published, but I kind of written different things. I wrote something on Father's Day one year. I wrote something on my mom's birthday that past year, and so I had started kind of seeing what the reaction was. And you were just sharing things. these like on Instagram, like or on my blog? like on my Facebook page okay. and Instagram, my personal stuff, and just seeing like I kind of just like needed to get things off my chest, and um, I had started dabbling in some other communities around grief that are really incredible, um, like the Dinner Party, which um, is a nonprofit organization that helps people in their twenties and thirties who experience significant loss. Um, they basically organize potluck dinner groups um, internationally at this point oh, um, who so get together. Amazing. It is the most amazing organization. I'm obsessed with it. I host in San Francisco. I have a dinner coming up next week. There's about, you know, 15 of us that get together every six weeks, potluck dinner. Sometimes we talk, you know, very explicitly about, you know, grief and loss. It can be grief and loss as it like kind of presents itself at work. It can be, I mean, dating. It can be like literally anywhere the conversation takes us. But mm-hmm. um, I had under, I started to under, that was what had taught me kind of the value of community around grief and loss. Um, and for many people who come into the dinner party, that can be their first time entering a room full of people who have had a similar experience to them. Um, and so I understood what the power was in community around grief and loss. Yeah. Um, and then the other kind of resource that I had come across is Modern Loss, um, which Rebecca Soffer and yeah. Gabby Bergner started. I just, um, uh, I just started following them because I think oh, they yeah. followed me and I was like, oh man, this is amazing. They're the best. Um, so I had, you know, read their book when they published that, had joined their Facebook group where people are posting about their different stories. Um, and then Rebecca hosted a grief retreat last summer in the Berkshires. Um, and it was basically about writing through grief and loss. Um, and so coming off of the heels of that, that was the beginning of August. I was like, I have all this kind of pent up energy about, I want to write. I don't know like what the right formula is. And so that's where I kind of started my Instagram because I just decided I needed to start somewhere and like, we'll see where it goes. Right. Like how many people's accounts do you follow that? Like if you were to go back to their first post, it doesn't necessarily reflect where it is today. Hmm. Um, and that would be okay. I think I was fixated on trying to find kind of, present the perfect thing sure um but decided it was more valuable like i just need to get started just need to be yeah true to who you are and just get going yeah 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 instagram's a great place for (laughs) curating yeah it's been it's been a wild like discovery process for me i think had i known how much was already out there i don't know that i would have done it and so i'm Mm. almost glad that i didn't why Uh, do you say that because it would have felt like oh this is a space that's kind of covered like what else am i adding to it um well you're adding your unique personal story which is valued you know oh for sure thank you i appreciate that but as a person (laughs) it is easy to convince yourself that if someone else is doing something that you can convince yourself that you have no unique value to add yes Um, i do i mean i I, i'm preaching to the choir to myself as well because i say it all the time i'm just like who's gonna listen to me i'm just a like i said i'm just a silly boy (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I'm with you. So yeah, I think it was kind of going into it blindly was the best thing I could have done was because then it gave me the enough confidence to just kind of explore and see what happens. So the name that good grief, like mm-hmm. to me that r- speaks of like, there's like this implicit, implicit acknowledgement of like, almost like a acceptance of it, like a positive sort of spin on it. Like where to you, where, what does it mean? What is, where did that name come from? Yeah. So I, I, the first name I kind of came up with was good grief. Um, I love the kind of like idea of grief being good in certain ways and then there being like a good version of grief. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously like Charlie Brown. And Charlie Brown yeah. yeah. I, I'm not pretending I invented that thing, <laughs> um, but I think it was like just kind of like a, one of those things where it's like a colloquialism. If you like actually think about it, it makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, Truth be told, that Instagram handle was already taken, so I had ah, to get creative. <laughs> um, and that felt like a good way to kind of define it of like, oh, it's that 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 one. Like, uh-huh. I know what you're talking about, like that little sliver of grief that can be good or wholesome or healing or just kind of like part of the process. Yeah, yeah. And how how has that been? How has how has sort of starting this been? You obviously, you know, you're building a community and people are responding. Yeah, I mean, it's been a journey so far. It hasn't been that long, right? I started in August. Um, It's been incredible to see the engagement and interest that I've gotten so far. I think the greatest gift has been obviously people like taking the time to share their stories with me or, you know, kind of give me feedback and whatnot. Um, You know, it means a lot. Um, And I think sometimes I hear stories where I'm just, you know, kind of truly touched by one, like the emotion that people are putting into it and the vulnerability that they're sharing with me. and that's like kind of the gift for putting my own vulnerability out there. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, every now and then I go through cycles where I'm not sure what I'm doing with it or what value it's bringing or, you know, is it kind of too much to manage in addition to like my day job? Um, but then there's always something that comes back to kind of be the, the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, I, I think it's so lovely. And it's such a, it's a reminder for me, certainly, uh, that, you know, we can be like in these efforts that we create and in our vulnerabilities, we can be these mirrors for each other. And I think it's such a beautiful sort of reciprocation that happens. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the number one most important thing, like with grief is validation of your feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, I was talking to someone recently, I was saying, you know, there's so much of that tape playing over and over. I know, at least in my own head, that, you know, oh, am I feeling it too much? Am I not okay? Am I you know, this whole kind of societal pressure to like kind of move on from things. Um, And so any sort of external validation that like maybe I'm doing too much is like the most harmful thing that can happen. Um, And so then to be able to put out a platform that's surrounded on the idea of like, no, whatever it is you're feeling like completely normal um, is kind of the most important piece of it for me. Yeah. In addition to, I will say, in addition to the fact that it provides me with a daily therapy outlet, right? Like I'm going to my therapist once a week. (laughs) Um, It helps me every day that, you know, you, you talk about the big things in therapy, but there are also the small things that are seemingly inconsequential, but during grief can be really, really um, powerful and meaningful. And to have an excuse to kind of process those is really powerful for me on a personal level. Absolutely. Yeah. Now jumping off of that, can we, can you share some, uh, I guess, tips for dealing with grief, like, you know, you being someone who is processing grief Mm -hmm. uh, yourself. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I can tell you what the advice is that I've gotten from other people. Um, probably none of it is my own, other than the one thing that I like to believe I did not invent. But I will tell you, when people are in those times of crisis, you're getting a thousand like text messages or whatever it may be. I truly believe that the emoji was invented for these situations. <laughs> like I just remember getting so many inundated with messages and I'm like, I don't, I'm someone who likes to like, you know, acknowledge and respond and be on it all the time. Yeah. It, it's not the moment to do it. Um, heart emoji, go back to it later. If you want to read it, want to respond to it later, totally fine. Um, but honestly, the emoji is the greatest thing invented. Um, other than that, <laughs> on a more less tactical note, um, I think, the greatest thing I ever learned was that grief is nonlinear. Um, you can't expect one day to be bad, one day to be less bad, and the next day to be like less bad than that. And it just gets better and better from there. Um, it's much more like waves of the ocean where it kind of ebbs and flows. Um, and I think over time, the ebbing and flowing becomes more predictable. Um, you get to understand what those rhythms are and what might trigger it. Um, but it doesn't stop ebbing and flowing. Yeah. I mean, we, we spoke about that earlier. I think it's a good, yeah, good reminder. Yeah. And I think the one other thing, um, one other thing I guess I would say is just also, um, it's about surviving, not thriving in times of grief. Mm. Uh, I think there's so much going on. Like if it doesn't, if it doesn't add to your ability to survive what you need to, um, just say no for the time being um, and get back to it later. You'll, you'll get back to a point where you have the room and the energy and the space to, you know, breathe through it and thrive. But for now, I like to say it's, you know, one day at a time, one hour at a time, one breath at a time, um, whatever you need to kind of get through. Nice. The next breath. That's great. You know, one of the things that I, I was thinking as you were saying that is, you know, you hear stories of people kind of uh, going through a tremendous loss and, and, and getting, and we were speaking about this earlier, getting caught up in the why of it, right? Getting caught up mm -hmm. in like, why is this happening to me? Why, you know, and, and I think that's a totally reasonable and human response. And I think, I guess this is leading to my question of like, has this experience for you shooken your life philosophy your your relationship with uh your religion like is it is it shaking that sort of core up at all yes um i don't know that it's changed it it's just put it into perspective for me mm -hmm. um i think that it obviously brings mortality more like top of mind for me in like an everyday way yeah um i think again like i don't search for the why it's just a reminder that like we all have a certain amount of time on this earth. We don't normally get to find out how long that is. Um, and so I'm going to try my best in most moments to like not sweat the small stuff and really focus on just what makes me happy and finding joy in those small moments too. Mm. Um, I always reference there's one time I was walking on the Upper West Side of New York and there was a family sitting outside and eating, you know, lunch. And what, there was a toddler in a high chair and the parent had given the child a French fry. And like the joy that came upon that child's face <laughs> in that moment, I was like, that's what people should feel. Like, that's what I need, you know, in those happy moments, like it needs to be that level of lightness um, to kind of balance out these moments of darkness and sadness and like the depth of that that you can kind of discover with grief. Um, and so I think it's just, 
I hate to, you know, kind of become cliche about it, about like carpe diem and seize a day and whatever else, but it's really more about like everything in a perspective that allows you to really, really enjoy things and really let things hurt too. Yeah. Um, and finding that those, that balance of extremes just to kind of make life worth living past a certain point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, cause that's what life is. Like I, I feel that my own process of processing of my trauma and actually doing the work of like looking at my trauma and being in it and, and sort of learning from it and being curious and, and, and being kind to myself during the process. Like I've been able to experience so much brighter joys because of it, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I'm with you. Yeah. So there, I got a handful of uh, questions and comments from the Yumi Empathy community. Uh, this one's from Cont- uh, Katrina in the Facebook group. She says, um, and we can respond to these, you know, however we want. Um, okay. uh, she says, I wish someone had told me when I was a child that my grief was mine, especially as a girl. I didn't feel like I could say no when people asked how my father died. It's interesting. Uh, um, yeah. I mean, I think saying no, what is that? I mean, that's like the hardest thing to do. <laughs> uh, absolutely. I mean, Outside boundaries. of like watching your parents die, but that in and of itself, I would say, yeah. yeah, boundaries is something I've certainly struggled with. I think um, the only reason I've started to get a handle on them, and I, I mean that honestly of like, it's been a last year and a half of trying to figure that out out and an everyday piece of it too um has been one that like kind of surviving versus thriving mode of like i there's just too much i can't take on more than i can and so that frees you up to say no um the other thing dealing with my brother and i've gone to um nar non meetings which is basically so there's like aa and na for the addicts and then for their families they have support groups as well that follow like a 12-step program Mm -hmm. um and that's all about kind of what you can control and what you can't control and you can't control someone else's decisions. And so, um, trying to separate for myself, what is mine to decide and what is someone else's to decide. And so I think obviously like experiencing a trauma like that at a young age is gonna, you know, kind of make its mark on you. And so it's no wonder that at that age you weren't able to do it. But I think, um, as you grow older, you kind of can embrace that power to do so over time. Yeah. And and I I would say also that just remember that it's, again, there's no right or wrong way to process grief. Like we each have our own sort of way to do that. I I think there are core sort of tenets to it in in what Rachel said about it not being linear and and these things and how there will be ebbs and flows every single day. And and we kind of have to recognize those sort of just facts about the human experience. The truth is that you know, um, the way I process grief may be different than how you do it. And mm-hmm. I think we can get caught up in like, oh, am I doing this right? And you spoke to this a bit. Um, just kind of try to be in it, be kind to yourself and lean on, you know, people uh, to support you and, and therapy. <laughs> therapy, <laughs> yoga, yeah. breathing, yeah. acupuncture, whatever you believe in. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, Lucy, uh, who's at Collie Burl on Instagram says, and Lucy actually reached out to me in addition to this. uh, She's, she recently lost her, her pet Mm -hmm. and she's, you know, 
she's been struggling and, and she wants to know like, how, how does she fill the loss? You know? And I, I would say just, you know, I like, so uh, we were talking about my dog snoring earlier, you know, before we got <laughs> recording and I, I can't imagine my life without Scooby, my black lab, who's 12 and will be 13 in October. And I, 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 I don't look forward to that day, but I've put dogs down before and I've lost pets and, and, um, I think you, you just have to, for me, what helps me honestly is reminding myself that, that, um, I am Scooby's favorite part of the world and <laughs> of the day. And he is living, um, like, like he's living day to day. I mean, he's, he's in the moment. He's as present as possible and so for me, what helps me is reminding myself to to meet him on that level, and to know that he is happy and 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 grateful for sort of our relationship. And I, I you know, I don't have much more to say than that. And just like you know, it sucks. It definitely it sucks. Sucks, right? I, yeah, I think it's some, it's honestly how. I have different situations where people try to respond to like my story and I'm just like, yeah, it sucks. Like there's not a better way to say it. I'm not expecting you to come up with some super eloquent summary that I've never thought of before. Like it just sucks. It sucks. And so Lucy, my heart goes out to you, friend. I, I know you're struggling, but it, it, it is, it is a loss that will impact you and, and you'll sort of learn from this experience and, and, you'll, you know, you'll find joy again and you'll find bright brights again. And, you know, I, I think you loving your animal this much is, is a beautiful sign of the, the love that you can give the world, you know? And so just remember that. And yeah. Okay. Um, this one is from Leah, uh, at fitness travel love on Instagram. Uh, my boyfriend passed and I'm struggling with finding ways to support the family and heal. Um, gosh, uh, Leah, uh, very sorry for your loss. Um, uh, do you have any comments on that one? (laughs) I think, I mean, yeah, Leah, my, my heart goes out to you and sorry, you have to kind of experience the pain that comes with all of this. Um, I think just even asking the question about what you can do for other people speaks volumes about kind of who you are as a person. Um, I like to think about there's an analogy that um, I'm blanking on the person's name, but there's these like circles of support that you can think of. So in the center of the circle is the person who's maybe struggling with an illness or the immediate family. And then there are the concentric circles out there. And the idea is that if you're on an outer part of the circle and looking inward, your job is to support that person. And from the inner circle looking outward, um, that person is supposed to kind of be able to dump out their feelings on you. Um, and so I think it's just keeping that in mind of anything that you're doing in support of them is supporting them. Um, and then also making sure that you're giving yourself the space with the appropriate people, maybe one step outside that circle, um, to have them support you too, so that you can do your best to support them too. Cause it's not a one way street. It has to be two way. Um, and so you need, you need the support you need in order to be able to help others too. Beautifully said. Um, uh, she sells seashells by the seashore. Ooh, they didn't make that easy on, on Instagram. <laughs> um, I need to learn how to not uh, to not get over, but be with the loss of five babies. 
I have PTSD now. Um, wow. I, uh, I don't know the, the circumstances of this, if, if this is, uh, regardless of the deals, that's, that's, that's brutal and that's sucks. And I'm very sorry. Um, I, I don't know what to say. Like I, you know, it's just, <laughs> it's, it's these types of things. Like I, you know, me personally, I haven't, I haven't lost someone close to me. Um, you know, I've, I've lost grandparents and, and uncle and, um, you know, certainly <laughs> lots of pets. Um, but I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, my heart goes out to you. My heart's breaking for you. Remember to, you know, I think, you know, using Rachel's sort of advice for, for Leah, I think could be beneficial. I think just be kind to yourself. Remember that life, um, is wacky and weird and, and chaotic and hold on to the people that, that you love and, and get support there. And, um, recognize that this is not your fault, that this is just some random happenstance. It's just, it's just one of those shitty parts of life that happen. And, and it's not any bearing on who you are and, and, you know, um, yeah. Any, any other thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I would just add like, this is not yours to carry alone. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's impossible for you to kind of get through something by yourself. I think there are definitely parts of grief that are totally personal and you kind of need that time alone in bed and crying by yourself and lights off and having that moment. Um, but there's also so much to be shared in it. And, um, I think to, you know, especially if you're experiencing symptoms of PTSD, I would certainly seek, you know, kind of professional help and counsel in that, but also leaning on friends and family and anyone else you may have who either has experienced something similar or can just relate because they're kind of human on that level um, to help them carry that weight with you, um, I think can kind of provide some, some support so you're not alone. Nice. Uh, thank you for that. Um, so Katie at KT Lab 717 on Instagram, her brother passed away last month. Uh, any advice on what not to do dealing with loss? <laughs> um, no. <laughs> I say do whatever you need to do. Yeah. Um, I think that grief will happen in its own time. And so I always try to say just lean into whatever emotion you're having. Um, I think, you know, in the darkest of times, like that's not forever. And so you kind of just have to ride that wave. Um, and the more you fight it, the longer it's going to last. And the same with the highs, I would say that, you know, if you're feeling good, like go with it because it's not forever. Um, and so you need to kind of run with what you've got. Um, I think the only thing I would say is like, it's not about getting over it. It's about getting through it. And so like, I wouldn't recommend trying to get over it because that's probably not going to work. Um, but you know, do what you need to do in your own time. I don't think there's one right or wrong way to go about it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and the last, the last question, um, is from Marjolene in the Facebook group. She says, I'd be curious to hear what Rachel thinks are the most common misconceptions about grief. For me, I thought for a long time that grief was something that sort of automatically happened when you lose a loved one or perhaps a pet, but it was not until I was in my twenties that I realized or rather found out in therapy that I never grieved for a lost childhood and the divorce of my parents. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great point. Like 
we, like I said, it kind of comes to you in its own time. And so, um, you know, I've certainly heard from many people who maybe lost a parent while they're, you know, raising young children. And so they don't have the time or space to properly grieve or, you know, it was in a childhood that they didn't have kind of the tools in their, in their belt, if you will, um, to kind of take that on. So that's definitely a big misconception. I think also the idea that like you kind of get over it over time. Um, I think it evolves. I think you build a life around it. Um, but I don't think it disappears. Um, and I don't think that there's any sort of getting over it to be done. Yeah. Um, and I often feel like the people who are kind of saying that to you or you feel that suggestion are the ones who maybe have their own sort of grief that they haven't necessarily dealt with. Um, so I wouldn't kind of take that to heart if you can. Um, the other, I, I wouldn't say it's a misconception, but the other thing I like to say is like grief is also a very physical experience. So a lot of people don't necessarily realize when they're having maybe some certain aches and pains, if they're more tired more than often than they are, things that you wouldn't necessarily think first up of like grief, which is like, hey, you think you cry a lot or whatever it may be. Um, there can be a lot of like psychosomatic symptoms that come with it. Um, and so again, not a doctor, can't, <laughs> you know, can't tell you exactly what it is, but I would just keep in mind that there are certain like aches and pains that come on a physical level. Um, that your body has to take on in addition to the grief that can be really taxing. And so um, to cut yourself a little slack yeah. during that time too. Oh, thank you for that. And, and you know, I think for, I'm just going to make a blanket statement for all listeners. Uh, again, Rachel and I aren't therapists. You know, we're, we're just, uh, we have these personal experiences um, and uh, we're just here to talk about them. But, you know, if you are, struggling with with loss and, and grief you know uh definitely i re recommend therapy you know and i i think uh therapy has i think saved my life and um you know therapy is an important part of rachel li rachel's life so definitely you know uh, i would i would recommend therapy for sure okay um rachel let's uh we'll uh, we'll sort of plug all your things in a moment here but Okay. <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about empathy here. This is kind of like the part of the toward the end of the show where we always name an empathy hero, someone in our lives. Could be a character from a book. Could be a, um, a character from a movie. Could be a quote we like uh, from a book. Could be someone we know personally. Just anyone who's just a really great empathetic person. I will go first to give you a moment to think on okay. it. Uh, my empathy hero this week is Gretchen Rubin, uh, and this is a quote from uh, her book, The Happiness Project. She says, quote, what you do every day matters more than what you do once in a while, end quote. And um, I love that. And it, I think it's a, it's like a, actually like it serendipitously fits into this conversation very well, because I think... Um, who we are as people is the is in the everyday. It is in how we process the day to day and how we look at the day to day and how we sort of process each moment and how it happens and be present and engaged in the moment and 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 not sort of focused on the sort of the big the big things the big sort of achievements or the big you know it's just it's really about how we're tested and how we come out of that in our sort of day-to-day goings-on with people and experiences. So uh, I really liked that quote from uh, Gretchen Rubin, and that's why she's my empathy hero this week. I love that. Yeah. How about you? Um, I'd have to say 
Um, I loved a book I read. It was called The Empathy Exams um, by Leslie Jameson. And there was one quote from that that really stuck with me. Um, that was empathy. What was it? Oh, empathy is understanding that no trauma has discrete edges. Mm. So the idea that, you know, it's easy to have sympathy when you, it makes sense to you, (laughs) kind of like what the other person's feeling. Um, I think empathy is taking that one step further and understanding that just because it kind of brings us back to the beginning of our conversation here today of like, just because you don't feel it doesn't mean someone else isn't. And understanding that something that they've, you know, experienced can permeate much beyond what your like rational mind is telling you it should permeate. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, talking about you and your partner earlier, or also like just grief generally is understanding like, yes, from the outside, this may not look like a situation where like, grief should be affecting me because it's not, you know, some obvious trigger or whatever it may be. Um, but understanding that it, it, it kind of leaks its way into a lot of things and having the empathy to recognize that. That's great. I, I love that. And what's the book again? It's called The Empathy Exams awesome. by Leslie Jameson. Cool. I'll make sure to link that in the show notes. Yeah. Um, well, where, uh, Rachel, where can people connect with you and, and just learn more about the, the work you're doing? Yeah. Instagram is definitely the best place to start. Um, so like we said, my handle is at that good grief. Um, and then I have an email address on there. You can always DM me. I check those um, and we can connect. And for anyone who's looking for some more grief resources, I always have a kind of go-to list that I give people of different books and Facebook groups and whatnot to join. So um, feel free to shoot me a DM and I'd be happy to share that with you. Awesome. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for being here and sharing your story on Yumi Empathy. Thanks for having me. Love it. You're welcome. And to you listeners, I'm here, you're here. We're here together on this wayward, overwhelming, awe-inspiring pale blue dot. We have each other. It's Yumi Empathy. Empathy.